Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Jason. But wait, not that Jason. This is Jason from Meeple, Myself, and I. Jason, how you doing? Hey there, Peter. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, thank you. So what is Meeple, Myself, and I? It sounds like... You like playing games by yourself, which is what we do here as well. Yes, I uh, have a review series on BGG that's called uh, Meeple, Myself, and I. I've been doing that for about five years. And just about a year ago, I started doing a podcast for reviews as well. And I focus just on solo games. I try to take kind of a more topical approach and a more thematic approach to things when I can. So the podcasts are fully scripted and uh, try to do something almost in the style of different podcasts I like, like Radio Lab, This American Life, Serial, stuff like that. So uh, right now I'm going through my top 100 solo games over on that podcast. And uh, we'll be going through that pretty slowly, uh, trying to slow down and do a bit of a retrospective of the stuff I've been reviewing for the past few years. And uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, what I'm up to right now. Well, as you've probably found out already, just from talking to me for five minutes before we started recording today, <laughs> I am super scripted as well. Everything is totally <laughs> planned out ahead of time. 100%, yes. <laughs> it's so funny. I hear people talk about like their show notes when they're talking about their podcast. It's like, didn't you see it in the show notes or whatever else? I'm like, what the heck are show notes? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll find that I keep myself scripted for good reason because I can tend to ramble otherwise. So I think we'll have a good, hyper-focused, non-rambling conversation here for sure today. You and me should do great. (laughs) Nice. All right. So have you spoiled your top 10 solo games anywhere yet? Or is that all just coming on the podcast? So the last time that I did my top 10, I did a Reddit post uh, maybe about a year ago. No, it was called 2020 for 2020. It was my top 20 multiplayer and solo games at the beginning. So that was two years ago then. There's been some pretty significant evolution since then, but there are some older versions that are out there for sure. So just so people get a chance to know you a little bit better in our audience, what were some of the games at the top of the list back then? Yeah, so some of the games that were at the top of the list for solo a couple years ago were At the Gates of Loyang, Race for the Galaxy, Spirit Island is quite high up there as well, Oniram and Sprawlopolis as well. So I tend to either gravitate towards games that are really fast and easy to set up but still have some pretty chunky decisions or games that probably are pretty long and involved and heavy. So I like those lighter, crunchier games um, or those all weekend, all day kind of games. I'm so glad you mentioned At the Gates of Loyang because I couldn't remember the name of that game to save my life. But I was like, there used to be this farming game and I've never played it solo. I played it plenty of times multiplayer. I was like, I didn't love it multiplayer, but everybody said how good it was solo and I wasn't into solo games back then. So I'm definitely going to have to try to find myself a copy of At the Gates of Loyang again. In fact, it might be in my library of games and I don't even know it. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I I may have collected more games than I uh, have time to play at this point. Oh, I understand that that struggle is quite real. <laughs> yes. But I, uh, yeah, that's my, I'm, I'm a big Uwe Rosenberg fan, especially solo. His games aren't, don't quite have the kind of interactivity that I love for multiplayer games, but I'll still happily play it because I think mechanically they're really satisfying. But most of his games I prefer solo and Loyang is my, uh, is my favorite solo game of his for sure. 
I'm going to contest you a little bit on one, which is one of my favorite games of him, but I don't think it's as good solo, which is Feast for Odin. Have you played that one? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love a Feast for Odin. I love all the stuff you're doing. And and the solo works. But <laughs> my big problem with the solo is it doesn't change from game to game. And you could literally just do the same things over and over. I mean, yes, you have a hand of cards, which dictates a little bit. But those cards aren't that powerful that I'm like totally changing my strategy to play around them most of the time. So I wish they had done a little bit more in that one. I mean, I love what you're doing. I just wish they would have picked a, a lane to make the game a little bit more different from game to game yeah and not to derail us into a uh, like an hour-long Uwe Rosenberg conversation (laughs) before we even get started with our actual conversation but I think that's an interesting kind of design approach that I think Rosenberg takes with his games he kind of has this like sandboxy thing that he does with some of his games Fields of Arla is is another one that has largely the same problem which is how dynamic the game is kind of incumbent on the player to go off and explore the nooks and crannies of the game and kind of see what's happening there rather than the game itself presenting a dynamic changing system over and over. And that's why I really like Loyang is because you have this three by four little grid of cards that you're filtering through as you're playing the game and solo that'll really significantly change up what options are available for you and uh, what you can do from game to game. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll definitely have to check that one out again because, uh, and who knows, if it's on Tabletop Simulator, I may even stream it for everybody because I have been into playing a lot of solo Euro games on our uh, One Stop Co-op Shop stream channel lately, and they have definitely been popular, the the Euro solo games that uh, nobody else basically on our channel covers because nobody likes them. And I've always loved Euro games. Um, so <laughs> I am uh, <laughs> definitely going back and exploring some of the best of all times. Now, you said Race for the Galaxy, too. I didn't even realize it was a solo mode for Race. Yes, there is with the Gathering Storm expansion, the first expansion. And I know Race kind of has a tangled mess of like three different arcs of full expansions and all of this stuff. I believe the Gathering Storm was the very first official expansion to the game back in the day. And it adds a bot that you play against. And it has this little mat. You roll some dice and it chooses the phases that the bot is going against. And um, I know a lot of people prefer to play it just with uh, solo AI or to play the app version of it. But I've always been really charmed by kind of managing the bot and uh, the AI will have different personalities depending on what starting world it, it has at the beginning of the game. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's a really cool AI mode that I'm really excited to kind of come back and revisit as I'm going through my top 100 and get up towards the top of that list later on. And I like games like that. And um, Imperium has an AI that works very similar. It's different based on whatever faction you're playing against. Gaia Project, which is also one of my favorite solos of all time, has Mm -hmm. a similar system where it's a slight modification based on the alien race you're playing against, but it really does make them play completely differently. It's funny. It's not even every card. You might not even get those cards barely at all from game to game, but it does really make them do different things and you have to plan differently against the different AIs. And I really think that's clever. I really like when they make some kind of a bot to challenge you differently each game so you can get used to playing against different types of players. Yep, absolutely. But before we get too much further, I guess we should talk about what game we're talking about today, which is uh, (laughs) Imperium. (laughs) We're only a few minutes in, but you know what? People can probably read it from the title of the podcast episode. They probably knew we were talking about Imperium anyway. So there's two different Imperiums. There's Classics and Legends. And I'm going to say right up front, I have only played Classics, but uh, you told me you played both of them, right? Yes, that is correct. I haven't played as every faction, but I have played 
with factions from both boxes. Yeah, that's awesome. So we'll get a little bit wider perspective from you there. Whereas I think classics is generally agreed upon to be the place you should start anyway. So for me, it'll be a little bit more, this is where you should start. And then from what I understand, Legends really expands out the complexity and just the wackiness of what they're doing a little bit. So, you know, as you get used to, what is it, six factions, eight factions in the the core box? I think it's eight per, I think it's eight in each box. Yeah. So, I mean, there's plenty to explore in each of the boxes individually, especially if you're only playing it as a solo, because you could play as every faction and against every faction as well. Mm-hmm. But that's we'll, we'll save all that for final thoughts. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here. We usually talk about what we've been playing, but I feel like we've covered a lot of games. <laughs> I think we'll get right into things. But first, we have to thank our uh, Patreon supporters. So this week, I want to thank Marie Laporte, a co-op fan, Kayo Thurin, a co-op lover, and Marcin Matzers, a co-op MVP. So Marie, Kaya, and Martin, thank you so much. And thank you to all our Patreon supporters and everyone who's helped us be as successful as we are. We've really seen a lot of growth lately on the One Stop Co-op Shop YouTube channel, the One Stop Co-op Shop streamed YouTube channel, and our One Stop Co-op Shop TikTok. We just really appreciate you all for all the support and encouragement you've given us. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Imperium. Did you want to kind of cover the theme of the classics? Yeah, this is a civilization tableau building asymmetric game. And when you start off the game, you're going to be picking a different nation at the back of the rule book. It has the complexity that's listed, and there's a pretty wide range of complexities across the two different boxes. And in the classics box, it's a lot of the unsurprisingly classic civilizations that you can take control of. You can be the Celts, the Greeks, the Macedonians, Persians, Vikings, Romans, and others. And in the solo mode in particular, you're just going to be facing off looking for the most victory points. So you are looking to build up your civilization, you are exploring different lands, you are getting helpers out, you are going through different decks, adding things to your decks, and uh, yeah, just kind of building up the strength of your civilization, which from civilization to civilization will be pretty different starting decks that you get and uh, pretty different powers that'll lead you in different directions kind of right from the beginning. Yeah, that's a very good overview. So I feel like I don't have to do a whole lot for the rules explanation here. (laughs) We don't get too deep into it anyway. But basically, on your turn, you're going to do one of three things. You're either going to activate, which is what you're going to do, I would say 90 plus percent of the time, or you're going to innovate or you're going to revolt. I'll talk about activating. Basically, you get three actions on a turn, and those are basically card plays from your hand for the most part. And not every card you're going to play from your hand has to be activated. Some of them are free actions. You also get to exhaust cards in front of you in your tableau, and those might give you things from turn to turn. So you want to kind of build up that tableau so you can do more and more as the game progresses. At the beginning, you're not going to have a whole lot of things to exhaust to do, but as the game goes on, you may end up doing all eight of those things. Like you can do three actions and up to five exhaust actions on your turn. And that is most of your turns are going to be activating. But Another option is innovating. And I actually think this is a little bit innovative, but we might get into this in one of our points where basically you can grab not any card, but there's a face up row of cards and they're from different areas. So you have cards that are regions, you have cards that are uncivilized areas, you have civilized areas, you have tributaries who basically are helpers. And these are all cards that you're either going to put in your tableau or in your deck. 
But the innovate action, if you're just not getting the cards you need to go with your strategy, that lets you kind of dig for the exact type of card you need. That's a nice option, but you're not going to do it very often. At least I found I don't do it very often. And the final option is revolt. So as you're getting all of these different regions added to your areas, your unrest goes up as well. And these are basically the trash cards that come into your deck. Well, if you take a revolt action, you can clear out all of those unrest cards from your hand. You could do that anyway during your normal actions. Actually, each of the unrest cards has an action on it where you can discard some of your population or some of your resources to get rid of it. But in this situation, if you got just a bunch of unrest in your hand, it just gets you a chance to clear it all out for one basically free action. Although you don't get to do anything else if you do that. So you're going to do one of these actions then you go to a cleanup phase where you're going to pick one of the cards in the market that you get to add a victory point to. Now, this is an interesting mechanic, but again, we'll probably get into it in our top five points, but you get to pick which card to add a victory point to. Then you get to clear all your activation tokens up, your actions, your exhaustion tokens. Then you can discard as many cards as you want and you draw back up to your hand size. And that is basically it. And it's going to go around and around and around the table. Now, when it gets around to the first player again, right before their turn, they have a phase called the solstice phase, which if anyone has played any cards that have solstice effects, this is where everybody triggers them at the same time. So you might have effect that says discard a card to gain some population or discard a card to gain some supplies or discard a card to draw a new card, or some of them just give you things every time the solstice phase comes up. So this is kind of unique. So there's really just player turns. And then when the round is over is when you hit the solstice marker, but it doesn't really say it's the end of the round. There's not a big end of round thing. And then it gets back to you. Now for solo play, you're going to have a different number of cards, but it's mostly five cards laid up in front of you with numbers one through five over them. You're going to roll a dice and it's going to tell you which card is not going to activate this turn. And they're all face down. So you don't know what they are anyway. But then you're going to flip over the other four cards. And again, if you roll a six, then you're going to flip up all five cards. So there's a little bit of variety there. And each of them tells you something to do. But you don't do exactly what's on the card because they use the player decks from that faction. And every faction basically has a grid of actions that says, do this first if the card has this on it. Do this second if the card has this on it. And then you go down the list and look for the highest priority thing that the bot wants to do, and then they'll do it. And then there are kind of two phases to the game as well. You've got kind of your uncivilized barbarian age, and then you have your empire age later in the game once you get through a certain point of the game. The AI does that as well. So the AI kind of levels up when they get to this empire phase, and then they're going to focus more on glory than they do in the beginning, which is when they're going to focus on building up their deck. But that's the basics of it. Uh, Anything you think uh, real important that I left out there, or should we get into our top five? No, I think that sounds great. There's some more intricacies to drawing from certain decks and stuff like that that I know we'll talk about here uh, in the top five. So uh, let's do it. Cool. All right. So for those of you first joining us, welcome. And what we do here is we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is our least important thing we think you need to know, and going all the way to number one, which is our most important thing. Of course, they're all important, though, because if not, they wouldn't be in the top five list. So, Jason, I'm going to let you get started. What is your number five thing you think people need to know about Imperium? Number five for me is the game's replayability. Even with just one box, I think the game has a lot 
of replayability that comes with it. When you are choosing a faction for yourself, and when you choose a faction for the bot as well, it actually changes the flavor of the game quite a bit. It gives you different goals to go for, changes the personality of the bot and the kinds of things that they'll do against you. Some bots will be more aggressive. Some bots are going to mill through their deck. Some bots are going to amass certain kinds of resources. And then you certainly are doing your own stuff as well. Um, and that's not even to speak of some of the really out there factions that are in the Imperium Legends box, uh, where you really start to do some wacky stuff where it almost doesn't even feel like you're playing the same game. <laughs> <laughs> the Atlanteans try to sync different things to, I think, to add them into their empire. The Arthurians go off questing for different things. And the Utopians... I don't even know how to begin <laughs> describing what it is that they do there. They have a completely bizarre set of their own rules that are, I mean, it, it, it's probably not even worth going into if you haven't even played the game, but yeah, there, I would say at least three of the factions in the, in the legends box, really, really radically different, very, very asymmetric relative to what a lot of the other factions do. Now I'm going to have to stream the Arthurians because I think it's a pretty yeah. cool concept to just go out questing. And yep. yeah, I'd love to see how it plays completely differently. So look forward yep. to a stream of me probably over the next week or so playing the uh, Arthurians. Awesome. All right. So my number five is the keywords. And this is a little bit of a negative for me. But the reason it is all the way down at number five is because I do think that this goes away after your first couple games. But I do think it is a barrier to entry and something people should know before they play the game their first time. So what I mean by this is the different stuff you have. So you got cards that are regions and you have cards that are uncivilized and civilized. You have tributaries, you have fame, you have unrest. Those you don't necessarily need to know the words for because they do a good job of using iconography, but they have words like abandon and acquire mm. and breakthrough and exile mm. and find and free play and garrison and history and recall and solstice. And you're just supposed to know what that means. Unlike Magic the Gathering, where like they have a keyword and then they'll kind of explain what it means. Oh, no, there's no handholding in this. And when you draw <laughs> that first five cards in your hand, you're like, I have no idea. It's like a different language when you first pick it up. Now, I will tell you, all you need is a quick reference sheet, and there's a great one on BGG, and I'll actually post a link to it in the uh, show notes, because I think if you know those like 10 words that I just said, trust me, there are other keywords as well, but most of them don't come up very often. I think if you can get a handle on what those keywords are, I think the learning curve will be a lot better. And it was a huge barrier to entry to me. Actually, the first time I played it was a three-player game. And I didn't love the game. I'm like, what's all the hype about mm. with this game? And it was all because it was just too overwhelming for me. So I do think that's a, at least a cautionary tale for new players as you get in. I would print off some kind of quick reference sheet or just understand that in the rule book, there's a glossary where you can look up all these keywords, but they're going to come up over and over again. So I do think it goes away after your first game, maybe your second game, it goes away a little bit. Although I'm sure if you put it down for a couple months, then you probably have to learn that language all over again. So for me, it's a little bit of a con, but because it's a barrier to entry, I think it'll scare people away after their first play. And it really shouldn't because it does become like a second language to you that you pick up and you'll then know it as you play the game after that. Yeah, that ties into my number four, if it's okay for me to just kind of dive Perfect. into that. Yeah. So my number four is the rule book itself. And the note that I made 
was that it's somewhere between painful and criminally bad. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the lack of a comprehensive player aid that could be that could have been very easily provided for the game is one of the biggest developmental swings and misses, I think, for the game overall. There's a decent amount of errata in the rulebook as well, especially when it comes to solo play. So in the base at least in the printing that I have, they don't explain what you do with unrest cards when you are playing solo, which is a particularly large oversight considering that's something that's going to be coming up uh, every over single time again? that you play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the errata, the lack of player aids, I think the keywords are a bit of a mess and especially not having just a little one cheater or a card that you can use for that. And I just had a really hard time. I had a very similar experience to you where I read the rulebook, thought that I was prepared to play the game, sat down to play it, and felt pretty overwhelmed the first time that I played it. I, I think that the rulebook does this very strange backloading of information where the actual core rules of the game itself, it's only about four or five pages of the rulebook, and then most of the actual physical base game rulebook is just keywords. And you have to flip through and find that, and then explanations of how the different factions work. Um, and that works okay, but I I felt like I wasn't too prepared for like how significant those keywords were and how much I would need to be flipping through that rulebook to familiarize myself with terms that aren't intuitive. So like breakthrough is a really, really, really important word that you have to know. And if you are flipping through that to find the difference between that and acquire and garrison and all of that stuff. Well, and a lot of them are similar, right? Like breakthrough and acquire are almost the same action, but there's a very key important difference with that or a couple of key important differences with them that if you don't know, and again, the words are, I guess, not that similar in that situation, but they they mean almost the same thing. And so, yeah, it it really is a little bit of a learning curve. And then just to piggyback on you, because this isn't one of my points, but they have a solo rule book as well. And I was super excited when I started reading this solo rule book because it talked about setup at the beginning. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to have a rule book that is literally something where you can skip the main rule book and just read this rule book and understand because it's about the same thickness as the multiplayer rule book. And when they went through every step of setup, just as if they were teaching it to you, I'm like, oh, I don't need the regular rule book. I threw it aside. I started reading through setup. I set up exactly how they told me to in the solo rule book. Then I flip over and they're like, yeah, most of the rules for the game are the same as the base game. I'm like, <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> now I had to go back to the base rule book. So it's funny because I had set up according to the base rule book. Then I'm like, well, what's this solo rule book? Let me look there. And I looked and I'm like, oh, they have all the rules here. No, no, they don't, by the way. No, they <laughs> do not. <laughs> But yeah, I think that that it's just some strange decisions, I think, for for the rule books themselves. And I think that the keywords, I think the problem with the term like breakthrough is that it doesn't on its own elicit much of an idea of what it does. You just have to kind of memorize that definition and it doesn't really evoke what the action is very much for me. Um, it kind of feels like I think a similar game, which to me is kind of the archetypal example of keyword bloat is Renegade, the deck builder by Ricky Royal. Yep. And a uh, really, really fantastic game. But man, are there about, it feels like 600 keywords that you have to know the subtle differences between. And I felt that way uh, with the Imperium games too. 
Yeah, and I bounced off of Renegade. I know that's very popular in the solo community, and I know Ricky Royal is a great guy. He actually reviewed our first game. He was one of the only people to review it, mm-hmm. playing it solo. So I like Ricky a lot, but I bounced off of that one, I think probably because of the keywords. Yep. There are certain games you just have to get over a hurdle with, and I, I just couldn't do it with that one. And, and again, nothing against the game itself, especially as a reviewer, you know. I mean, there's just so many games coming in all the time that like oh, you yeah. feel like you have to keep up with it. And if it doesn't catch you with the first couple of plays, then it's hard. So uh, that's definitely one, though, that I feel like I should go back to and check out again. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. So my number four is the turn structure. And I'm specifically going to focus on the three actions and the five exhausts that you could get. It's really interesting because at the beginning of the game, as I was saying, you have these three actions and your cards are very basic. And so, but as the game goes on, your cards become more and more advanced and they can do more things in and of themselves. Not only that though, but some of the cards, when you take an action with them, it basically just means put them into play. And that's the way the regions work. And regions, you put them into play and they might give you some benefit or tell you to do something as you put it into play. It usually does have some effect. But then you have this glory card, which you're going to use to kind of pull up three regions and get rid of those three regions from your tableau and then get these fame cards from the top, which is basically your victory points. So that's kind of the cycle, at least for what I've seen so far, that some of the factions want to do to get their victory point engine going at the end. So you're really trying to gain these different regions to your area, play them down in front of you with the actions, and then trade them in with this glory card to get fame cards. So you think you'd want thinner decks to do that, but then your faction might push you to do different things. They might push you to go to different regions. So it's funny how with these three actions and just having slightly different cards that do slightly different things and your faction saying, hey, I'll give you points if you do this thing over here, it kind of points you in a different direction, but you're still always fighting because you want those fame cards because there were so many victory points at the end of the game that you're like, oh man, these fame cards. So I just think the way the turn structure goes, a lot of times, especially early in the game, your turns can be pretty quick because again, you're just playing three cards from your hand of the five cards that you have. Now, later on, you may play a card to your tableau that says increase your hand size by one. So now you have six options. It might say discard a card to do something else. So I love how with these three simple actions, and sometimes I'll have one action in my hand at the beginning of my turn, one card that's basically a usable action. And the rest of the cards, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with these. But then you know that one action gives you card draw. And I've drawn into hands where I can actually do all three actions, where at the beginning I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to do for my other actions. So I just love how it's a very simple system. You're exhausting cards to let you do things throughout your turn. And again, at the beginning of the game, it's very simple, very quick turns. But as with all of these games, the good ones, at least anyway, the game accelerates as you go on. And that simple structure becomes more and more complex as you go on. And then if you just have a total garbage hand that are full of these unrest cards, because for whatever reason, either you've been discarding to draw that hand of unrest cards, or because you've just gotten unlucky and drawn a bad hand or whatever else, you could just take an action, get rid of all those unrest cards, and then start anew with your next turn. You don't feel like you're missing too much. And in fact, you're clearing out some negative victory points and some dead cards in your hand. So it actually feels good a lot of the times to be able to do that revolt action. I just usually don't build up enough unrest cards to make it worthwhile. Mm. I think that that system of you have this many actions, um, you can also sacrifice your turn to take any card that you want, or you can get rid of kind of the crap cards that have built up in your deck. 
it strikes a nice balance between your making forward progress, but you still have tense, interesting decisions that you're making, right? It doesn't feel agonizing like you're having to fight tooth and nail for any kind of positive progress, but it does feel meaningful, uh, the choices that you make on your turn. And I think it's a very nice balance that's uh, that's struck there. All right. So what's your number three, Jason? Yeah. So my, my number three is probably a mix and it is the length of the game. And particularly even at solo, games can go pretty long. I think that Peter, I saw on the playthrough that you did on your channel, was it what it was? Was it two and a half close to three hours for, for a playthrough? I know there was a lot of conversation and talk through with that stuff too, right? Yeah. My playthroughs are always long. I'll just put that up front <laughs> because I do <laughs> 20 minutes of rules explanation at the beginning and then I probably have an hour conversation at the end. Mm. So yes, the game itself was probably closer to an hour and a half to two hours, but yes, yeah. it, it, it is, uh, uh, we'll get to that point for me later on. So keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that for a game that is almost exclusively cards, it's surprisingly a bit of a table hog, even for solo, and it can take a long time. I think that you should be happy if you get out of a game in under 90 minutes, even when you're pretty familiar with the game. There's definitely a cadence because you have to mil- you have to go through your deck multiple times in order to get access to other decks, and to- there are lots of different ways to trigger the end of the game, but almost all of those require some investment and some progress either by you or by the bot. And so for me, for this kind of game, it can start to overstay its welcome just a little bit. It's a little bit longer than I think I would like it to be. The game itself is solid enough that I'm willing to push through that. But for a game of this type, and I guess we haven't really, I, I think we've probably talked around it a little bit, but this isn't a particularly light game. You know, I would list this as kind of a medium to me- medium heavy kind of game. It's not super, super involved. But for me, it's not like, oh, I'll pull this game out and I'm going to relax while doing something else. <laughs> right. Kind of game. Well, yeah. again, I think it's the keywords. Like you just read the cards. Yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? Yeah. So I, I think it's just important to know. You might think it's a relatively small-ish box, about a Race for the Galaxy size box. It's almost just all cards, but it's not a short game. It's important to know, especially when you're first learning how to play it, easily a couple hours. And that's not even talking about multiplayer, which will get to player count for me in a little bit as well. But uh, the more people that you add, the game just gets longer. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll touch on that more later. But my number three is how you add cards to your deck. And I think this is brilliant. And in fact, maybe it should have been my number one. It is such a brilliant system because there are several ways you add cards to your deck. Number one, every time you go through your deck of cards, so think about a deck builder. Every time you go through it, you're going to add a faction specific card to your deck. You're going to add it to your discard pile, shuffle it in. And now that card is permanently part of your deck. It kind of works for a timer as well. Remember, I said there are two phases where you're the barbarian phase early on, and later on you get to the empire phase. That's all triggered based on how quickly you go through your deck. And you have some control over that because remember, you can discard all your cards if you want at the end of your round. So you can discard all your cards and you can do things that let you cycle your deck faster, draw more cards, discard a card to draw a card, that kind of stuff. So you can control the speed. You can also 
what we always call culling cards or taking them out of your deck. In this situation, you put them in your history. And again, the word didn't make sense to me at first, but it's such a brilliant thing in my mind now that I think about it. When you put it in your history, it's like, oh yeah, we used to do that thing in the past. We don't do that anymore, but it still gives you victory points based on if the card itself had victory points on it, whatever else. So I think it's really smart how they do that. And those cards that come into your civilization aren't always good cards. You might bring Mm. more unrest in as well. So some of those cards that are added are either more complex as the game goes on, differentiate your faction as the game goes on, or they could be something that just adds unrest. Now, once you get to the empire phase at the end, you're no longer just getting those cards for free. Now you have an innovation deck where you have to pay for the cards in that innovation deck. Now, those are typically ways to specialize your deck a little bit better, and they give you quite a few victory points as well. So you get to every time again, you go through your deck, you're going to add cards in that way as well. And they have an interesting system, which most people forget to do, but basically where you exhaust that deck once you take a card from it. So you can't get a deck that's like three cards big and like cycle it five times during your turn to just draw (laughs) through this deck. They do have a a mechanism to stop you from doing that because there's certainly times I'm like, oh, I could have gone through it again, but I'm actually going to slow myself down so I don't go through it. So I love that. That's one way of adding cards to your deck, but that's not the only way you're going to add cards. Also, we talked about all those cards and there's like a row, an offer of cards. Now they are very specific in this game. So you're going to always have, at least at the beginning of the game, one uncivilized area, one civilized area, one region. And then you have a deck of cards, which basically shovels up all the extra cards from those decks, as well as adds tributaries to them as well. And you're going to add two cards from that. So you have a smattering, you know, you're going to have regions, uncivilized and civilized cards at the beginning of the game, but you're also going to have like a random assortment of other cards of that type as well. So you can acquire those in one of two ways. And we've talked around it a little bit. One way is acquiring those cards. The way that works is you can only choose from the face up cards. You look at the face up cards and you take one of them to your hand with everything that's on it. Remember, we're adding victory points to those cards at the end of every turn. So you don't necessarily want to make stuff too attractive that you want to get yourself because some people might take it just for those victory points. The other thing, though, is you do want to add victory points to cards you're going to collect, obviously, but you do that at the end of your turn. So by the time it gets back to your turn, everybody else at the table has had a chance to buy that before you or the bot in the case of the solo game, and they are more attracted to things with more victory points on it. But not only that, a lot of the areas, not the regions, but the uncivilized cards, the civilized cards and the tributaries come with unrest as well. If you think of civilization games, a lot of times you like outgrow your britches and it creates unrest and people are unhappy, Mm. things like that. I mean, it simulates that so well, because when you take this acquire action, you not only get the card itself, but you're taking an unrest. Every one of those cards comes with unrest. The only exception is regions. It's so genius to me the way this works. And then we talked about the breakthrough action. The way the breakthrough action works is almost the same as the acquire action, except you can take any card you want and you don't take the unrest. And you have another option with breakthrough as well, which is if there's no cards that you want, let's say you want an uncivilized card, but the one on the table, or maybe there's two on the table, you don't like either of those or any of your options. You can grab from a deck of just uncivilized cards and take the top one from there. And you don't have to take unrest. So breakthrough is kind of a better version of acquiring a card, but it's just, it's almost the same. Otherwise you still get all the victory points, everything else. You just don't get the bad stuff, which is the unrest with it. And you get a more of an option. 
There's a lot of ways of adding to your deck, and it not only adds good cards, but it adds bad cards at the same time. I just think that's brilliant. To me, that is like the most brilliant thing they've done with this game. And um, it, it isn't my number one, but it is certainly the most innovative thing and the reason I keep coming back. So again, maybe it should have been my number one. <laughs> Well, I will have plenty more to say about everything you're talking about higher up on my list. I think the thing that I'll call out here is the lack of currencies and the way that you acquire cards is one of the things that I just think works remarkably well. I mean, you know, with most deck builders, you think, okay, what's my equivalent of money? How am I buying cards from the rows? But that's not how this game works at all. You have a very different path to acquiring cards, whether that's your own personal cards or getting cards from the market row kind of a keyword acquisition type thing. Um, and that leads to very different considerations because it's no longer, oh, well, this is this is pretty bad, but it gives me four money. You know, that's not, that's all thrown out with this game. And I think that's an incredibly innovative and interesting approach to deck building. But again, I'll have plenty more to say about that. Well, I mean, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to disagree with you because there are two key resources in the game, which is population and those supplies or whatever it's called in the game. And so- you have those which are resources and a lot of times, so how do you acquire the cards? Usually you'll have a card in your hand that says acquire this kind of a card or acquire this or breakthrough for this. And, or it'll say spend three supplies to acquire a card or five supplies to break through for this type of card. So it'll give you even sometimes other options. So there are some resources, but they're not on your cards per se, although you get them from your cards. Cause again, you might have something that says, Every time during the solstice, collect two goods or collect one population or whatever, or discard a card to gain a population. And then you also have these victory point tokens, which you can trade in. And when you first play, you probably never remember to do this, but you could trade it in for (laughs) one population or for two of the supply goods, which is super important in a lot of situations when you're trying to buy something. You're like, oh, I'm a couple of resources short. Well, yeah, sometimes it's worth trading in those victory points for it. So I agree with you that it's not like a card-based economy, but there is definitely what you're doing is trying to collect those resources so you can spend them to buy more stuff. Yeah, I think it's definitely probably more accurate to say not that there aren't any resources that you use, but that you have lots of other ways of interacting with cards and getting cards outside of kind of the traditional deck building stuff. Because yeah, those population and resource tokens that you get can do a lot of different things for you. And I do like that stream of victory points down to population, down to resources, right? You can kind of make the better one always into something worse that you need as well, which is really flexible and nice too. Cool. All right. So what's your number two? My number two is player count. For me in particular, I I don't usually stick numbers onto my reviews, but uh, the way I think about this is it's probably a 9 out of 10 solo game for me and a 7 out of 10 multiplayer game at best. And the two things that that comes down to are downtime in multiplayer games and the a kind of a lack of the kind of interaction that I like in my multiplayer games. So as we talked about before, this is also a function of how long the game will run for, too. The more people that you add, the more time that the game is going to take, and also the more downtime that you're going to have between turns as well. And while you can spend that time planning out your next turn and figuring out what it is that you want to be doing, with the solo game, you're always doing something. You are running your own machine, and then you are consulting the little table for the bot figuring out what it is that they're going to be doing, running that and coming back to your turn. And that all flows pretty smoothly for the solo mode. But for a game that I like this much, there's a pretty big gap between how much I like it solo and just that I think it's fine multiplayer. 
And not everyone's going to have that experience, but it doesn't have a lot of the kind of interaction that I look for in multiplayer games. I won't call it overly take that e, but a lot of the decisions tend to be, I have a card that's going to make you recall a land back into your hand, or I took this card before you got the chance to get to it or something like that. And that's fine. There is some interactivity with the game, but it's not, I don't think it shines multiplayer for me. Well, I don't think it scales well either. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that it, and especially I think I played it three. I don't think I will ever play this four. I've never played it four players, but three, the playtime, the teach. (laughs) And I I had a very similar experience to you. One of my first times playing, playing with a couple new people thought that it was going to be a smooth experience, started going through it. It's like, wait, what? Let's get our nose into the rule books. (laughs) Flip, 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 find the keyword, flip, flip, flip. Two, I think it's pretty good. Three is uh, the most that I would go up to, but solo really lets you focus in on the puzzle of your own faction and the stuff that they want to be doing. And then the bot to me almost just kind of feels like upkeep that allows for some variability to come up in between my turns. Yeah, I agree. But there's a pretty big gap for me between between the solo and the multiplayer, larger than for games that I like this much solo, usually. Yeah, and one of the, the the reason I say it doesn't scale well is, for example, the first time I played, I played three-player, and the very first fame card I got, which was pretty early in the game, said, take one victory point from each player. If they can't give you a victory point, they get an unrest card. Now, that card at two players, it's a two victory point swing, right? I'm getting one victory point, you're losing one. And those fame cards are pretty good anyway. And I had ways of recurring the card. That's where it became broken, right? So I'd t- I would like literally be taking two victory points from each player each turn, and I'm getting four. But that doesn't scale at all. So in a two-player game, I'm getting one victory point from the other players. In a three-player game, I'm getting two victory points from the other players, and they're all losing one. In a four-player game, I'm getting three victory points every time that card comes back. And again, I had ways to recur the card from my discard pile. And so, again, I'm using it a lot of times twice a turn. I mean, there's no scaling there, which is a problem. And same with their other cards that, like take two food and give them a population or take two population and give them a food. Again, you're getting two from each player. It doesn't scale. I don't know why it wasn't like, I guess they didn't want to make it mean and like take two from a player, but I think they could Mm -hmm. have done things like gain two population. Each other faction loses two population. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It didn't have to be Mm -hmm. take two from each player. They could have done it a different way where it scaled fine. But as it is, it's very different in multiplayer games. So I don't know why the scaling is that way. So I don't even know that they played it at higher player count, to be honest, because those cards are (laughs) pretty obvious to me that I would not want that in a multiplayer game. I wouldn't want those in there. And in fact, I'd probably just house rule them to do what I said, which is Mm -hmm. you get one of the thing, not one per player. And then everybody else does still lose it though. Yeah. And I think that that kind of card just speaks to, I don't have a problem with, I take two from you or whatever. But that I think is indicative of a lot of the kind of interactivity that there is in the multiplayer game. And that just isn't really particularly my cup of tea. A lot of it is just take stuff from another person, have them remove something. It's basically kind of reach into someone's tableau or resources and mess with it a little bit. And I don't mind deeply interactive mean games. Um, Some of my favorite multiplayer games are very, very brutal and cutthroat. And this doesn't feel cutthroat. It just feels like, oh, hey, I took two victory points from you. Cool. <laughs> right. Well, right. <laughs> well, well, yeah. And, and it's just such a random thing. So I agree with you. 
I think they should have done something about those cards. I think they want, they're like, oh, this game is great. It just needs more interaction. And I think they just, it almost felt like they threw those cards in at the end. It's like, okay, this is interactive. Yeah, but it's interactive in a way that people don't necessarily like. So that's fine. But that was not one of my points. My number two is, you've already touched on it. It is a long game. It is a very long game. Uh, uh, Like you said, even in a solo game, you're talking at least an hour to play. And that's for people who know what they're doing. Maybe you can get it down to 45 minutes, but there's a lot going on. Now, there's pros and cons to long games, right? You can't get an epic feel in a short game. Mm -hmm. I don't care what Tiny Epic says. They're not epic (laughs) games, right? (laughs) Like this game feels, this game is tiny. It is in a small box. But it has a huge epic feel to it, and that comes along with game length as well. So in my mind, this is an epic game in both a good way and a bad way. Some people just love that kind of stuff, and some people aren't going to like it. I do think it has a good buildup, so you are constantly getting more and more powerful throughout the game, which is a good thing in one of these epic games. But again, if you just want to get to the end game, you're not going to get there with this one. So I just think it's something important to know going in. It's a long game. It's an epic game for better and for worse. Yep, absolutely. All right, are we going on to number one here? Yep, let's hear it. All right, my number one is something that you have touched on already, and it really is the that I think the game is a deeply innovative game that has a lot of twists on what you see from standard deck builders. You can play this game if you've never played a deck builder before, if you're looking for something brand new. But I think that the game is particularly well suited for someone who is looking for a different feel or flavor from deck builders from the other stuff that is out there. Because an asymmetric tableau building civilization deck building game where every faction starts with their own unique deck and there is some overlap between them but you are really pushed in different directions depending on the factions that you're playing and then you as you've talked about before as you're going through your deck you begin to add cards to your deck from your own personal second deck that you're drawing from and then when you've gone through that deck then you can purchase even more unique cards that you add to your deck as well that is an, adds a lot of tempo and pacing considerations that I think are really interesting because when I, one of my very first plays of the game, I was like, oh man, I want to get to these cards as soon as possible. And I'm going to thin out my deck so I can just fly through my draw pile so that I can get access to these cool cards. And it became really apparent almost immediately that I had thinned out my deck way too much and I wasn't Mistakes able to were do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And for me, deck building heuristic number one is, you know, thin out your deck, make it as svelte, make it lean, make it so that it's an engine that you can start running. But that logic was really turned on its head in that playthrough. And it really impressed me because it made me think, wow, lots of the normal motions that I would go through in a deck builder, it's really not working out for me here. And I need to stop and really think about what is the puzzle that's in front of me here and how do I make the most of this faction. And not just that, but then you take that and you spread that across 16 different factions where you're going to be led in different directions and encouraged to do different things. There's also the glory deck that you were talking about where you get really powerful cards that have lots of victory points or do really strong things on those cards as well. So I know earlier I talked about replayability, but I think that the number one thing for me that goes with that replayability is just that the game is incredibly innovative and clever. It is a game that does a lot of things with deck builders that I haven't seen before. And for someone like me, for deck building as a system is is fine, but I really like to hear like, oh, what's the twist that this game is bringing to deck builders? Oh, Aeon's End, you don't shuffle your cards. Okay, cool. Let's see how that works out. And there's just a lot of 
how you add cards to your hand or to your deck, the different decks that you're going through and the different experiences. It is a really, really innovative game. And for me, looking back on like top 100 games that I've been reviewing for my podcast, innovation is really something that I value as as I've started to play a lot of different games. I like something that stands out and this will feel very different than a lot of the deck builders I think that people have played before. Yeah, no, I agree. And my number one we kind of touched on it at the beginning, but we haven't really talked about it a lot since is the, just the variety of this game. I mean, even in the base box to get eight different factions. And again, they do so much with a small deck of cards. I mean, each faction is probably only 20 to 40 cards for the entire faction. I guess it's a little more than 20. It's probably closer to 30 cards. I would guess for each faction, but they do so much unique, innovative stuff with them. And the one thing I'll say is we talked about, like it kind of pushes you down a different path. Yes, you're going down a different path, but even going down that path, if I'm using the same faction over and over, it doesn't feel like I'm getting to the same end point. And that's one thing I definitely want to emphasize. The variety in the factions is real. Each faction plays differently, but the things I love about Gaia Project and the things I love about this game, and yes, I'm using it in the same sentence as Gaia Project, which for me is very high praise indeed, because it's my (laughs) probably second favorite solo game of all time. But I mean, putting in the same sentence, I I really do think while it pushes you in a certain direction, you have a lot of flexibility in that path you take and you can end up in very different places from game to game and you can end up getting there in very different ways. Not only that, but if I'm playing my same faction against a different AI faction, it's going to feel very different from game to game as well. And again, something I love about Gaia Project is just switching out the AI bot really changes the feel of the game. And that is so true here as well changing up the faction you're going against. I mean, it's crazy to me that, I mean, it's so simple, but so brilliant, that little chart that they put in the book. And usually I hate looking up charts and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? But you see the same cards over and over because it's a deck builder and you see the same stuff over and over. And it's like, oh, it's got that symbol on it. I know that's high up in their priority list and this is all they do. It's very simple and quick to to do the AI actions. Like the first time through the deck, it's actually a little bit slower that you play with each faction, but then as you get used to the cards and what they do when that card comes up, makes it much faster and easy to do. So I don't know. I I just think the amount of variety in this game, especially for solo, but even in multiplayer, it's just a huge amount of variety. It's amazing what they did with such little cards. And I've only played classics. I can't even (laughs) imagine like (laughs) from what I understand, it's way bigger in the legends edition of the game. And I'm sure they're going to come out with more stuff too, because this game has been immensely popular. Yeah. I think that one of the fundamental design challenges of asymmetric games is to kind of give whatever faction or civilization or whatever, give them kind of a core competency, but then make it so that the player doesn't feel like they're handcuffed to that or that there's a clear, obvious path that they have to take, right? And I think what you're talking about, these games do really, really well. You start off with a faction and they're going to be good at something. They they won't be, or they'll be bad at something, right? And you have to, we also haven't even talked about like, there's variable scoring conditions depending on the A side or B side of the different base faction cards that you have. And even within each faction, there's slight variability that you can choose to switch things up as well. But I think that, it does a really nice job of showing you some of the things that you're kind of encouraged to explore, but you're not hammered if you don't do exactly like the right path in the right order, right? And that's a really, really nice balance that is 
struck in the game. You are good at some things and you can go off and try things out, but you're also free to explore and you also have to be responsive to whatever bot it is that you're playing against as well. And all of that makes for a really, really dynamic, especially solo play that if it's not obvious, I just really love this game. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So the A side and B side, it's interesting because yes, every faction has it, but it's a play off of the same thing. One might uh, for example, the Greeks I'm thinking of, like the A side might just be get one victory point for every five cards you have in your deck at the end of the game. And the B side might be gain one victory point for every seven cards, but you also have this cool special power that lets you do something, yeah. which basically helps you get to that. Honestly, I just mostly play with the B sides. The first time I ever played and introducing new players, I think the A side's fine because it's like one less rule they got to figure out at the beginning mm-hmm. of the game. But for the most part, I kind of feel like the B side is really what you're playing. Is that true for all the factions or is that specifically for Ooh, just the ones I played? I think that as you go into some of the Legends ones, I think that there's a little bit more variability baked into that. Okay. I am now trying to remember flipping back and forth between those two sides. But I, yeah, I think that you're right that a lot of them are kind of structured in a way which is a simple nothing <laughs> power where you just have a little better at scoring and then a little power which will boost you up that way as well but i i know that there are some factions that have powers on both sides as well and they can change up a little bit so i know that there is at least some tweaking to that as well oh that would be cool wow that yeah adds even more I, the only reason i didn't mention it is i i didn't even think a side was worth mentioning just because I was, <laughs> like for most of the factions i played it's just like yeah it's a different way of scoring that gets you a little bit more victory points but takes a little complexity away because you don't have a special power, basically. Yeah, I believe that there are factions that have not wildly different, but they have different kind of approaches to the A and B side and have text on both sides that give you powers. Well, that's awesome. All right, so you've already mentioned your final thoughts. You said you think it's a 9 out of 10 solo game. So any other final statements to uh, let us know your love for this (laughs) game? Because it's clearly near the top of your list. Yeah, I think that people looking to get into this game would do well probably to take the route that you're taking, which is to start with the Imperium Classics box and to try out those factions and to uh, see if the system is something that grabs you. I believe there are only two five out of five complexity factions and both of them are in the Legends box. A quarter of the factions there are really zany, wacky (laughs) uh, kind of factions. But for me... This ticks a lot of my boxes. It has, I love asymmetry. I know we mentioned like Spirit Island, one of my favorite games. Root is also one of my favorite solo games as well. Multiplayer too. But I really, really like games that have very different feels for the players that are going through them. So for asymmetry built into a deck builder with innovation in the deck building in the way that we've seen here, this is a game... For me, sometimes when I play games, I think like, oh, wow, that was a really clever game, but I didn't really think it was very fun. Um, And this is a game that's enormously clever, very innovative, and is also just really, really fun. The decisions that you make matter. They're interesting, crunchy decisions on almost every single turn. Uh, You have a wide variety of choices, and it feels like what you're doing is always important and working towards something without being overwhelming. It's a really, really good game, and I really hope to what you were saying that we just keep getting to see more more boxes, more factions, and more stuff in the future. Yeah, and I'm with you. It isn't going to be nearly as high on my list. Well, I shouldn't say not nearly as high. It's going to be very high on my list of top games of all time, but that's that's saying something, right? I think the one thing holding this game back for me is something you mentioned earlier is the length. If they could figure out a way to do some kind yep. of a prelude or something else that just gets you into the game a little faster and has a few less turns, 
that this game would be way near the top of my list. I love civilization games. This game, when I first played it, I'm like, oh, it feels like a deck builder. It didn't feel like a civilization game to me. But as I played more and more, it really has that civilization feel to me. Because you're getting technologies again, but everything's just going in your deck. It's all simplified into this deck builder system. But as you've pointed out many times, it doesn't feel like a typical deck builder. There is no, this card's worth one money. Okay, discard four of those one money cards to get this other card. There's none of that. You're building up a tableau to increase your population, to increase the supplies you have, things like that, that'll help you buy other cards and get other cards into your empire. But boy, oh, it just, it has a very satisfying arc to me. What I will say, though, that's nice about Solo, if you've got a dedicated table, is I'll just leave it set up. I'll play a few turns and come back to it. And I think it's got that one more turn feel that a lot of Civilization games have. The only thing I'll warn you, because I've done this, and I don't know if you've had this experience. I've walked away from the game and come back and totally forgot where I was in the turn structure. <laughs> because yeah, you've got your that. turn. It's not like most AI games, because you've got your turn, you've got the bot's turn, which is fine. You could track that pretty easily. You do it in a lot of games, and it's like, oh, it's my turn again. But it's that stupid solstice phase, which, again, <laughs> nine-tenths of the time doesn't matter. But if you got, like, three solstice cards, which you will halfway through the game, it's like... Did I do the solstice phase already? Did I not do the solstice phase? So I just got a pawn. I either put on the solstice card, I put on the bot, or I put on myself just to remember if I do leave the table, like what phase I'm in when I get back to the table, because uh, it's definitely easy to lose track of that. If you miss mess up and take two turns in a row or whatever, it's not going to be the end of the day. That's not the best part about this game. The scoring at the end is not what I'm looking forward to, which by the way, we never covered, but it is a little bit convoluted as well. Yeah takes a little bit of calculating. It is that Euro, okay, we're done with the game. Now put your cards in 27 different piles. How many of this mm-hmm. symbol do you have? How many of this do you have? Mm-hmm. Like adding up situation at the end of the game. But yeah, I, I don't care about that, honestly. I love building my faction and seeing how well I do. And again, that's represented by a score at the end. But I, I just think it's fun to do all the things in this game. And that's what I really like about it. Agreed. All right, so we're going to have a little bit of a design discussion here at the end about card games and specifically card solo and co-op games. We brought up about civilization-based games, so maybe that's where we should start in this game and Through the Ages. Now, Through the Ages doesn't have a solo or a co-op mode, although I'd argue that the best way to play Through the Ages is on the app, so not even as a board game, Mm -hmm. against those solo challenges that they have on there. And that is one of my favorite ways to play that game. I still play it till today. They have such a variety and difficulty in things that I think that if you haven't tried out the Through the Ages app yet, and you've thought about trying Through the Ages, I don't know. I almost don't even want to play that game in person anymore. That app is done so well. And those challenges are just so fun for me. But let's just talk about in general, Civ-based card games. And I think Through the Ages started it all. Yeah, I think uh, just thinking through some more of that conversation, civilization card games, for me, the big two, at least that I have a lot of experience with are Through the Ages and then um, Innovation by Carl Chudik as well. And I think what those have in common with this game, which I know was a really big innovation at the time for Through the Ages, is also the lack of kind of a centralized map where everyone is gathered together in some way, maybe fighting over resources and different things like that. But the appeal of card-heavy games for me is the ease of getting them out to the table and uh, the fact that pretty much everything is contained right on those cards, right? And I think that yeah. I get that feeling. I don't. Have you played Innovation? I have. I hate that game. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely yeah. hate it. I mean, that is that is one of the most swingy games in the history of histories. You just feel, I mean, they're, talk about feel bad moments. Like there's some combinations where people just crush you. They're taking all your cards every turn. You're basically top decking to get what you need. And like you're praying that you do something to break their vice grip on you. Oh my gosh. Like for me as a co-op solo player, that game is so painful in so many ways. Well, and I think it's an interesting comparison there when we talk about interactivity with games, right? Because innovation as a card-based multiplayer civilization game, you are certainly up in each other's faces a lot more with innovation and with Through the Ages as well, right? With the combat, I know the combat of Through the Ages is something that can divide people a little bit, but both of those games for better or worse, really do have you kind of jumping into each other's sandboxes and doing things to each other a lot more, right? Where I think the Imperium games, yes, there are touch points in the game, but I don't think that the other people in the game drive my decision points as much in Imperium as they certainly do in innovation, uh, for better or worse, or for Through the Ages as well. So there's a pretty wide range, you know, on the scale of how much can someone come and knock over your sandcastle. I think that innovation you should go into the game expecting that <laughs> and, yeah. and should be knowing that that's going to happen where Imperium, it's a pretty, it's a pretty different experience. And I think through the ages probably falls somewhere into the middle there. And especially with the modifications they made with a new story of civilization to some of those combat things as well. Yeah. So let's bring out the lens a little bit. So we zoomed in on specifically civilization based card games, but I think you brought up one of the good positive aspects of it is most of the information can be stored on the cards, but we can even look at games like Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition and compare that to regular Terraforming Mars. We can look at Castles of Burgundy card game. I hate to say, Mm -hmm. because Castle of Burgundy is one of my favorite games. I bounced off the card game a little bit, but we could talk about maybe why uh, some of the pros and cons there as well. And I know some people bounced off of Ares Expedition for Terraforming Mars as well, probably for similar reasons. The thing is, I didn't have the core love. And maybe that's maybe that's interesting because you would think people who would love Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition were people who love Terraforming Mars. You think people who'd love Castles of Burgundy, the card game are people who mm. love Castles of Burgundy. But honestly, so let's maybe not start with a positive. Let's start with the negative here. The reason I didn't love Castle of Burgundy, the card game, even though 90% of the mechanics were the same as regular Castles of Burgundy, is they took out the player board. And the the spatial element of it, which was a huge element for me. And I think Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition does the same thing. So if your favorite part is that board part in the middle of the table, which some people find superfluous, but for me, for Castles of Burgundy, it's one of the, and it's not even a central board, it's my personal player board. Spatial puzzle games really appeal to me. And so when you change something to a card game, it's a lot of times it's really hard to get that same spatial puzzle or whatever else in it. And so I think that is potentially one of the negatives is you might lose your core audience, but you might find a whole new audience as well. Yeah, I think that we see this a lot with blank the card game and blank the dice game, especially, right? Kind of like bite-sized smaller versions or reimaginations or re-implementations. Terraforming Mars and Ares Expedition or another one that came to mind is Puerto Rico and San Juan. San Juan, which then, I mean, San Juan and Race for the Galaxy, there's a whole saga of design right through that uh there they, they have a lot of the same design dna well right they were designed together and then at one point they split 
they branched off. Yeah. Right. Cause it's like, no, I think we should go this direction. No, I think we should go this direction. You know what? They're both good directions. Let's split off and see which one comes out better. And they, they both did really well, ironically. Then race for the galaxy has the kind of the strange inverse of that where new frontiers, right? That's the full board game version of race for the galaxy. And don't forget roll for the, the galaxy. Version. <laughs> yes. So there, I think you're right that you can spread your appeal to different audiences and get people who might be more open to a lighter experience in some way. But I think that especially if you're a heavier, crunchier game, or you have an audience that is really rabid about the original game, I think you're right that you have a pretty strong likelihood that the game is going to be a miss for some of those original fans because you're streamlining out maybe some of the stuff that they really liked about that. But yeah, there's all you always run that risk when you make blank the card game that the people who are rabid about that original game are going to miss the things that they really loved about it. Well, I think a lot of times you are going to lose those people. But uh, all right. So this is a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a cynical view here. But the whole reason we started this podcast was for designers and really digging deep into the mechanics of games. So let's talk about this. As a designer, the benefit of making a the card game is just so appealing. Because number one, even though your core audience will probably bounce off of it and probably not like it as much as the base game, they're probably also all going to buy it. So (laughs) you've already got a base of people buying your game, even if they don't love it as much as the base game, because they probably won't. Honestly, the reason I think I like Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition is because it isn't the base game. There were things about the base game I didn't like that I think are better in Ares Expedition. So for me, that's the version of the game I want to play. So that's the second half of the equation. So not only are all your original people probably going to buy that game and support you in that way, you're probably going to find a whole new group of people that are here. Oh, this is a better version of the game or a different version of the game. And they're going to buy that because I heard plenty of people saying that they preferred Castles of Burgundy, the card game over Castles of Burgundy. The reason I didn't is because I love the base game so much, but I still bought it. So now (laughs) a little cynical here, but bottom line is you're going to get many more people buying your, the card game version probably because, (laughs) you know, they want a, a streamlined version of the base game. And your core audience is going to buy it just because they love what you did and they want to see how you've changed up the formula. So I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to do it, even if it pushes off your core audience a little bit. I don't think they're going to be so mad with you that they're going to say, well, I'm not going to play regular terraforming Mars now. They're just going to figure out what they like better. And they do have a lighter version if they want to give it to their family and get people into it. Because that's the other thing. I think these things can be a stepping stone to your full game. Like mm-hmm. people that play Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, maybe they're like, wow, this was kind of neat. I wish it was a little more, though. And then those Terraforming Mars super fans go, oh, oh, oh I got something for you. <laughs> Come check this yeah. out. And I think that that, from a design standpoint, that challenge of iterating on your designs, I mean, I think of like Reiner Knizia, who can take the same game and, and spin it into seven different versions that play on different mechanical parts that are big highlight in game one and then go to the back of game two. I mean, I, I think of like Tigris and Euphrates and Yellow and Yangtze, like small tweaks on a game can fundamentally change the experience that you have. So from, I, I totally see what you're saying. I'm not a designer myself, but I'm sure that the having a finished product and then going to it and saying, okay, now how can we riff on this and how can we do something else that's interesting with it is an interesting design challenge and making a card version of that game it's pretty understandable why people streamline that down to something that's a little bit more approachable. Uh, And I mean, we've talked about 
race for the galaxy quite a bit a jump drive is another example of that as well right there's even the more streamlined race for the galaxy game that's out there too and that allows the people who love the game say hey do you want to try this out in a bite-sized form or use it as a gateway as you were saying uh for people to lead them into the heavier stuff that's in the hobby as well i think there are lots of benefits to playing around with the designs that you've got out there and then just for us as the consumers and the reviewers it's being discerning about okay what was the thing that made the the original game tick and does this card version bring something interesting to the table that we haven't seen before yeah i think one of the bigger things we're looking at here and the game we reviewed today imperium is the perfect example of this cards let you take a small form factor game and really make it much more complex and much more robust than you would ever think it could be because you don't need a whole lot of rules overhead. As you said, the main rules for Imperium are not that long. And yes, there are some keywords that they could have covered better. But I mean, I'm looking at the player aids and I could probably play Imperium based on the player aids for a medium weight game. And it's medium only because of the text on the cards and things like that. I got a two-sided play raid here that I think is all the rules I would ever need to remember to be able to fully play and appreciate the game. So I think the rules can be very small and light with still adding a lot of flavor and a lot of complexity. Marvel Champions is a perfect example for me. Yeah. All those heroes feel like those heroes, even though there's nothing on the card. I mean, yes, there are names, I guess, thematic names, things like that. But the cards feel like they're doing some super cool superpower. And it's just all right there in front of you on the text of the card itself. So I think the game can feel more epic with a smaller amount of components using cards. Yeah, I think one of the big risks of having a sprawling card approach is is keyword bloat. And I think of like Marvel Legendary and other games like that at, at Magic the Gathering as examples where the longer that the game goes on and the more cards that are added into the ecosystem for you know everything that's out there, the more innovation comes with it. They add new mechanisms, they add new keywords, but it can be, you can pretty quickly get into those scenarios where like you pull out Marvel Legendary and you're like, oh, wow, what do these keywords mean? And then you have to go pull right. up the seventh little rule book for that particular hero to find out what the stuff is. And I think we see that that issue come up even just here in one box with Imperium Classics as well, right? I think that that it is very keyword dependent. And I think that cuts both ways because it allows, once you're familiar with those keywords, uh, it's a very simple shorthand and really lowers that cognitive load of what's required to run the game overall. But you have to be willing to invest into those, you know, into that system and learn what all of that stuff is. And the more expansive that a game gets, the longer that it's around, the more expansions that they make, the more challenging it can be to kind of stay an expert on the stuff that you have in your game. Awesome. Well, I think it's a great point to end on, unless you got any more pearls of wisdom, you think, for a card game. <laughs> no, no, I think I think this has been great, Peter. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, Jason. So tell us where you can be found. Meeple, myself, and I, Board Game Geek. Yep. Meeple, myself, and I on any podcatcher that you use, you should, you should be able to find it. And I've got my review series on BGG. My handle's Neotrunks2002. Welcome to message me there. and do written reviews every so often and uh, focusing on the podcast for this year too. Awesome. Well, definitely go check out Jason. I mean, obviously he's got a lot of clever stuff to say. He's clearly has some very articulate thoughts on it. And uh, you like a lot of the same games I do. I mean, get rid of that innovation garbage. And, and <laughs> I would say, let's sit down for a game of innovation. It sounds like we'll have a wonderful time. Uh, <laughs> let's, we can play, we can play glory to Rome. I'll, I'll be okay with that. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. And we will see you all very soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Hey, Jason. Hey. I got a lot of unrest going on in my household over here. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to burn it all down. Oh, no. (laughs)